Join me in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it does uh, remind me of when Paul Powell, the pastor of Green Acres Baptist Church in uh, Tyler, Texas, uh, left there and went to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Annuity Board. Uh, he um, uh, experienced a lot of celebrations uh, over his new position, and, and uh, the uh, congregation wanted to show him appreciation. And uh, third graders wrote him personal notes. And one little boy wrote, Thank you for being our preacher. Thank you for making your sermons interesting. A lot of times I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> Paul Powell said he thinks that uh, a deacon wrote that and signed a kid's name to it. But um, when you look at this passage in Matthew seven thirteen to 29, the challenge of this passage is not what Jesus is talking about. It's that it overthrows powerfully and intensely a lot of popular notions about religion. Uh, it's a difficult passage. Sometimes hearing Jesus was probably like watching a Hallmark movie or the Hallmark Channel. Let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Love your enemies. Uh, those kinds of words. But sometimes hearing Jesus and reading Jesus is like watching a mixed martial arts fight, an MMA battle. Uh, this passage is like that. Sometimes listening to Jesus and reading Jesus is both. A mixed martial arts battle on the Hallmark Channel. Uh, even John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. The implication or the inference is you can perish. And so God came on a rescue mission through His Son. Um, John chapter 8, verse 11, uh, the woman caught in some scandalous sin, brought before Jesus, they wouldn't throw stones at her, and Jesus looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Sometimes it was both. This passage is not both. This passage is not balanced. This is an MMA battle, beginning in verse number 13. Begin reading with me. In verse 13, where Jesus begins to talk about two gates. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. They would have understood this because many of their cities had large gates that could handle two-way traffic. They'd be open during the day hours, and many people would pass through them. But then there were some narrow passageways between buildings where you couldn't get a wagon or a chariot or two people through. And they were small, narrow passages. They would understand this. And Jesus is saying that choices about religious faith and faith are much like this. There are some broad ways that are the most popular but the problem is they lead to destruction, the word used in the New Testament for perishing in hell. But then there are some narrow ways. There is a narrow way because there's only one way to God. And that was Jesus himself, and he made that clear. The, the remarkable thing is, the shocking thing is, is that when it comes to the broad ways, the wide gates, there are many who go into it. In other words, these paths that lead to destruction are the most popular. 
And the one that leads to life is the least popular. And there are actually, Jesus said, few who find it. So he talks about two gates. Then he talks about two trees. Beginning in verse number 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, which he repeats in verse 20. Well, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, of course not. They don't. So, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And then every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits will know them. And he continues, Not everyone who says to me on judgment day, essentially, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me on that day of of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? You notice the repetition of your name. It's emphatic here. They speak the name of Jesus often. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus said there will be false prophets and they will be masters at disguise. Some false prophets are obvious, but some are not. And the ones Jesus is talking about here probably are not the ones you're thinking about because they come in sheep's clothing. They are shocking to the people of God. Now, now look, look, what, look at the sheep's clothing they wear in verses 21 and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so they, believe, they, they confess the deity of Christ, and they're fervent about it. They're emphatic. They say, Lord, Lord. They're orthodox, and they're fervent. Lord, Lord. One Lord's not enough. They've got to repeat it twice. They'll not enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. And then there are many in verse 22. They'll say to me on that day, again, fervently, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons, done many wonders, so they're active. Now, I don't know if they're faking these things or if they're empowered by Satan, because uh, Paul will say later in um, 2 Thessalonians that the Antichrist will empower certain people to perform miracles. And when you read Revelation 13 through 18 about the Antichrist, you find he receives a mortal wound on the head but is raised from the dead. Not everything supernatural comes from God. And Jesus made that clear. So there's some kind of sinister, hateful, satanic power to pull off either counter or fake miracles or to do something that is at least as impressive as a miracle of Jesus. That's why they call him the Antichrist, and these have been infected with that. And so these false prophets are orthodox, they're fervent, they're numerous, and they're active. So how do you tell the difference between a true and a false prophet? Well, Jesus makes it very clear in verse 16 and 20. You will know them by their fruits. Watch what they produce. Are they producing a biblically defined ministry? Do they repeat and expound the content of the Word of God? And then look at their followers. Do they choose holiness? Do they have deep-seated soul-shaking repentance. Is that how they begin the Christian life? Do they walk in humility? Are they, have they embraced the mission of Jesus Christ? Look at their fruit, Jesus said. Now, we're not to be judges, but we can be fruit inspectors. 
And Jesus actually encourages that. And here's why in verse 23. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Never, ever give religious people a pass. Witness even to religious people. Because there is an eternity to face. There's a heaven to gain. There's a hell to shun. And Jesus makes that clear. And then he talks about two foundations. Verses 24 through 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock of my sayings, Jesus would say. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, like some have chosen already this morning to do or not to do, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. I mean, the two homes may be identical with um, the framing, with the light fixtures, even the flooring. But look what happens to this house built on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So two homes, they might look identical, but one is built upon a strong foundation, the other is built on sand. And Jesus said some people are like these homes. Some choose to do my word. They put it into action. And so when the storm of life and the storm of the judgment of God comes, they stand. But there are some who have as equally impressive a home. But the storms of life come, or the storm of the judgment of God comes, and they fall before God. So here in this text, Jesus taught courage. He taught discernment, obedience, and action in His Word. And if you'll look at your worship guide, you'll find under the skeletal outline of the message a box there that says action plans. Jesus expects us to put into action what we've heard, and we've provided that there. The thing I want to argue this morning is that Jesus deserves our trust and service because of His teaching ministry. No one taught like Jesus. And the question this morning is then, what did Jesus do with this teaching? Well, there are several things. One, with authority, Jesus applied the word to eternity. And I say authority because of verse number 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. There are two voices here. The scribes would quote one rabbi after another, and that would give them some kind of authority by consensus. There apparently was a religious consensus among them, and that was an authority. The problem is is that the consensus oftentimes has been wrong. 15th century, most people thought the world was flat. Back in the 19th century, many thought that taking a bath was harmful to your health. I'm glad we got over that. (laughs) Uh, the early 20th century, they thought the Wright brothers were crazy for thinking of flying. Well, there are two voices here, and Jesus taught with authority. And the first thing he did is he applied the word to eternity. With authority, he applied the word to eternity. Jesus was concerned about a certain set of subjects and did not address another set of subjects. I saw a sermon title one time entitled, What to Do When Your Neighbor Won't Cut His Grass. Really? With all the foolishness, heartache, 
sorrow, and then in eternity afterwards to face. That's the best you can do, is to preach and teach on what to do when your neighbor won't cut his grass. Well, that's pretty easy. Go cut it for him. That kind of silliness should not find its way into the pulpit. Because it didn't find its way into Jesus' pulpit. Chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus commanded, using the imperative, enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate because there's an eternity to face. He uh, said in verse 13, For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. The word that is often used for perishing in hell. Destruction. There's an eternity there. And then narrow is the gate that leads to life in verse 14. So Jesus took eternity and put it right before the people. Now what he's been doing in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is that he's been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it's as if he comes to the end of the message and extends the invitation. And he says, okay, now I've taught you about how to have the kind of attitude that God blesses. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. We've talked about prayer, and we've talked about uh, giving, and we've talked about fasting. And then we've talked about not worrying. And then we've talked about not being overly censorious or critical of others. And we've talked about prayer as well. All right. This is to break your heart so you can see you don't meet my law and you'll turn to me for mercy. Now, what are you going to do with it? Well, here's what you need to do. Enter by the narrow gate that I've just prescribed. In Matthew chapter 10, he'll do the same. He will teach there. Matthew chapter 13, he'll teach there. And in Matthew 18, and then Matthew 24 and 25. Just like Moses had five books in the Old Testament, Jesus has five large teaching sections in the text. And he delivered, Moses did, that on behalf of Almighty God. Jesus, as Almighty God, delivers it himself here. His own five books in the Gospel of Matthew. And so Jesus applies the Word not merely to life and issues that linger here. He applies it to eternity and casts their vision there. In other words, he expected people to do something with the Word in light of eternity. It reminds me of um, a pastor who uh, went to a church and he got word that chairman of the search committee he was with had some problem with him. So he went by his place of business and started some small talk and he said, Look, I came by because I, I heard something I can't believe. And that is that we've got some kind of contention between us. Do us? He said, Yes. He said, Well, tell me what it is. He said, Well, you are... The preacher we need, but you're not the kind I like. You keep preaching on missions and evangelism and witnessing and praying in heaven and hell, and all I want to do is get up in the morning, go to church, and not be bothered. You know, that joker's got a lot of relatives and a whole lot of churches, doesn't he? Let me tell you, if you come to Beach Haven long enough, we're going to bother you. We're not going to run around and poke our fingers in your eye. And we're not going to be abrasive. But Jesus' word is the authority. And we're going to call people to make a commitment and to do something with it. Why? Because we're not perfect yet. On the other side of the grave, we will be. And we run the risk every day of embarrassing the Savior in His church with conduct and behavior. And so we will call for repentance and we will call for action. We will call for people to deepen and renew their commitment to Christ. We're not perfect and then our world isn't. And if you hang around people slinging mud long enough, you're going to get muddy. And we come together and we get muddy. 
That's why we emphasize the ministry of the Word because we are in desperate need. But too many people want to sit, soak, and sour till the second coming. And we're not going to do that around here. And that's not, that's not adequate for Jesus. Jesus had no room for this. Jesus actually got up in their grill, if I can put it that way. So Jesus deserves your trust and service because he didn't merely dispense information about this life. He called for application because of eternity. And at the end of this message, we'll call you to make a decision right after I preach. We'll sing another song. We'll invite you to make a decision for Christ. And we'd be glad to help you with that. Uh, There's a second thing that Jesus did. With authority, Jesus affirmed the contested doctrines of theology. Chapter 7, verse 13, he Uh, talked about hell in terms of destruction, and sometimes that's translated perdition. Chapter 7, verse 14, he talked about his exclusivity. Only few would find this. In verse 15, it's clear he believed in false prophets. Some things are true and some things are false. Chapter 7, verse 19, he mentioned the fire of hell. Chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone will make it. And so he was exclusive with his claims. Chapter 7, verse 23, he said, Depart from me, the most ominous statement a human could ever hear. So Jesus did not hide or obfuscate, minimize. Jesus did not forget the, these doctrines. He built his case here on the doctrines of hell, judgment, exclusivity, even his own deity. And these are the doctrines that the world contests the much, even in seminaries and some pulpits. Reminds me of Phillips Brooks, a great 19th century preacher, delivered the uh, lectures on preaching at Yale Divinity School years ago, and they're still read today, some of the best ever delivered. He was on his deathbed and not long from dying. Christian friends would come by his home to visit with him, and he would not see them because he didn't have the energy. But Robert Ingersoll, the infamous 19th century atheist, came by to visit with him. They were friends. And Phillips Brooks allowed him to come in. He received him. And they, they talked for a moment. And Ingersoll asked him, he said, Now, I understand you've not received your Christian friends. Why did you receive me and let me visit with you? And Phillips Brooks said, Well, I have the assurance I'll see my Christian friends in the next world, but this is perhaps the last time I will ever see you. That is why we preach and teach the Bible. You are important to God. That's why we emphasize these subjects. Jesus was slaughtered at the cross for you. This might be the last time we see you. These are real. And we must do all we can to throw out the lifeline of hope and salvation to every person we can. Now, since Jesus covered these, we've got to cover them. And I'd say to you, if you're in a church where the pastor and the ministry doesn't cover these, find another church. Jesus deserves your trust and service because he was courageous to camp on doctrines that are rejected by many. But there's a third thing. With authority, Jesus announced the cost of discipleship. Chapter 7, verse 14, he said, The way is narrow, and, uh, the, 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 narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way, which leads to life. The word difficult sometimes translated, uh, is sometimes translated persecution. And he's already taught about that. In the, in the text. Uh, 
and he says few are those who find it. So it can, it, can be, it can involve persecution. It can involve ridicule. There may be few who go with you. Chapter 7, verse 16, he says you'll know them by their fruits. He expects a life change when you follow him. Chapter 7, verse 21, only those who have done the will of God have got saving faith, the saving faith that gives them entrance into the kingdom. So what Jesus does is that he announces the cost of discipleship and he says it may cost you family, friends, a changed life, and doing God's will. He didn't hide these things to build a crowd. Oh, it would be wonderful to have a very large crowd that was united in Jesus' demands for discipleship, but Jesus would not reduce the cost in order to build a crowd. In fact, in John 6, he found that the crowd was challenging him. They tried to rush him prematurely to the throne of Rome. Well, he'd take that over one day without, without uh, breaking a sweat. But they tried to do it early, and so he preached a very hard and harsh message in John 6 and cut the crowd down so that his vision would not be polluted by those who had ulterior motives. Jesus would not build a crowd at the expense of biblical truth. He announced the cost of discipleship. So he deserves our trust and our service because he was entirely transparent. You knew where he stood, and you knew where you stood in relationship to him. There's a fourth thing. With authority, Jesus rejected the views of the majorities. Mark Twain, in fact, said, Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to reform. Now, we can't take that too far and become bellicose and belligerent. We can think that all majorities are wrong, and I don't think that's what the Lord is saying. But what he is saying is in chapter 7, verse 13, many are those who are on the way to destruction. Many. Let that sink down. Most religious opinions in the world are paths to destruction. Jesus is saying. And then he goes on in verse 22, and he says, many will come to me with a false profession. Many is what he's saying. Many. And so that means many, at one point or another, may be opposed to, to the truth of Jesus Christ. Back in the 4th century, they had a battle over the deity of Christ, and Athanasius was the leader of the biblical party and took a stand for the deity of Jesus Christ. And one person tried to intimidate him and said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And he said, well, then Athanasius is against the whole world. He stood, and he was willing to stand alone. And by the way, he won the day. We have maintained biblical Christology and what the Bible teaches about the deity of Christ ever since. So Jesus viewed some religious majorities with suspicion. He did not search for truth in opinion polls or religious surveys. And that's why some religious opinion polls are not of much value. Frankly, who cares? What does Christ say? So Jesus deserves your trust and service because he did not allow himself to get carried away with misguided sentiment of the majority, truth impressed him more. And you can count on him to stand on truth. Then the fifth item here is with authority, Jesus narrowed the choices for humanity. I can hear some person saying, oh, you Baptist, you think you are the only ones going to heaven. Well, I got to be honest with you, I'm more narrow than that. I don't think all the Baptists are going. I know some of those jokers. I'm worried. I've been with them more than three decades, and I've got my concerns. 
But Baptists have never taught that. You don't have to be a Baptist to go to heaven. There are plenty of Methodists and Episcopalians and Presbyterians and others that, that will, because going to heaven is not a matter of your denominational identity. It matters what you do with Jesus Christ, and there are plenty outside the Baptist family that have repented and placed faith in Christ and the biblical gospel. There are even some in the Baptist family that have done that as well. And that is what heaven is guaranteed on. The, the denominational identity is just a simple way to organize around doctrine and missions. And, and that's why we have the Baptist family. And I can hear somebody else say, well, this all sounds rather narrow-minded. Well, on October 6, 1990, my dear bride and I made a very narrow commitment to one another in our marriage when we said, I do. My bank is rather narrow. I would prefer for them to add some zeros to the account balance, but they narrowly insist it is what it is. The IRS, with my first pastor, it wasn't always so narrow, though. They made a mistake and said we had had for one particular year an employee on our staff that made a certain amount of money, and they debited our account for that. Well, they were wrong. We contacted uh, our senator uh, for the state, Strom Thurmond, and he uh, made a phone call real quickly. They said, we made a mistake. Well, they made the mistake again and debited the exact same amount again. Yanked it out of our account. Well, we would have preferred for them to have been narrow with our account. By the way, they returned it, but they didn't give us any interest. They'll charge it. An umpire can be narrow. I mean, bases may be loaded, your power hitter is up, and he hits a fly ball that goes foul by four inches. It, it can be one inch, and it's still foul. They're narrow in that case. Surgeons need to be narrow. I heard of one that was not. A woman went in for surgery. She had to have a defective eye removed, and the surgeon removed the wrong one. Why is it that we insist on narrowness in some areas, but not on this, when Jesus has a spoken word? Hey, that's just a little too convenient. Jesus has a narrow way. There are only two gates, one to life, one to destruction. Two trees, good fruit or bad fruit. Two foundations, one of the wise, one of the foolish, one that stands, one that falls. There are only two voices, the voice of God or the voice of the world. Jesus has prescribed this narrowness. We just receive it. Look, folks, I, I, sure, I, I didn't wake up this morning to offend the whole wide world, but you got to know, I didn't write this. I just report what's there, and I believe it, and, and I'm enthused by it. But I didn't write it. I didn't come up with all of this. So Jesus deserves your trust and service because he delivered counterintuitive truth, even if it was narrow. Oprah Winfrey complained with one Christian on television years ago, there can't be just one way to God. And my response is, there can't be two or more on the basis of what Jesus said. Look, for us to dismiss this, we'd have to think that we know more than, God, than Jesus does about God. Is there anybody here that feels comfortable with that proposition? There was a Russian Christian that during the days of communism suffered terrible persecution. He was taken from his family and he was placed into prison. And as a punishment, each morning for nine months, a guard would feed him toast that he spread with his own human waste. That's what he got to eat in those nine months. Went through a series of events and he was very stubborn in a godly way and he would not 
recant his faith in Christ. They tried one day, knowing they were about to release him that day, to get him to recant and record it, but he wouldn't do it. And they got so angry they had to let him go. He found his wife and his children in a town where they had been relocated. And he lived there a while and um, got to know a lady in the community, a Christian woman, who one day called upon him to come by her home to pray for her son, her middle-aged son, who was suffering from diabetes, and it didn't look like he was long from death. Well, this man, this Christian man, got to the bedside and recognized the man as the guard who fed him human waste for nine months. He didn't say anything. He put his hand on the young man, the middle-aged man, excuse me, told him about Jesus and prayed for him and asked God to heal him. What a marvelous picture of the grace of God. Who would ever want to invent a second way? This God extends that kind of grace. We have fed God our waste. In fact, one of the words used for us in Romans 3 can be translated spoiled milk. That's the condition that we're in before God. And this God responds in grace, but to have grace from God, we've got to admit that we are worthy of the worst of this passage. We've got to admit we are that middle-aged adult about to die, headed towards death, that is that guilty and odious. We are that deserving of condemnation. Until we get there, there's no hope of being made right with God. Romans 3, 9 and 10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. I had one kid tell me, I'm coming to Jesus because I'm just such a great guy. There is no hope for anybody like that. We don't come to Jesus because we have something to offer. We come because we realize our behavior and our soul have condemned us before God and we need somebody to show us mercy and He's the only one adequate to do it. And so when we come to Him, we admit, I am as guilty and as noxious as that guard. But then Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was slaughtered at the cross in our place. He loved us to death. And we admit that, that the cross, the cross was God's love paying for our sins. And I can be free. There's an adequate plan to get us to God and make us right with Him. It's not of me, it's of Him. And Romans 10, 11 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. In other words, I am assured grace. Let me put it this way. It is impossible for you to come to God today with a broken heart, knowing that you're guilty, trusting the death and resurrection of Christ, and God failed to come through. It won't happen. You call on God. You'll not be disappointed if you'll come on His terms, the terms we've just outlined according to His Word. Would you do that today? We'll have staff standing here desiring to help you if you need help with that. Some of you do. Please come. Some of you need to become part of Beach Haven. This is what we preach and teach. You, you need to move your, not only your letter, but your life here. You come. Maybe God has got something else He's doing on your heart and life that we can help you with. We'll be standing here in front ready to receive you. But I want to ask you to quickly stand, please. I'm going to pray. And we're going to ask God to do a neat work in your heart and life. Dear God, we thank You for the good news of the Word. And thank You that You've been straight. You've not been intimidated by us. You're not impressed. You're not wowed. 
But dear God, you are love. And I want to pray that you'll manifest great love and grace now by the Holy Spirit that friends' hearts will be converted, changed, and turned to you, and that friends will trust you, that they'll come and meet the Lord Jesus, that they'll follow Him in baptism, they'll become dedicated to your church, that they'll cast their burdens and sorrows upon you. Would you please do that in these moments and magnify Jesus as you do? Please help us today. Thank you for the promises of your word. And thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.